Welcome to the Meltzone Podcast. This is episode 66. I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And we haven't recorded in a while. So on this episode, there is a bit of catching up to do in terms of like what happened, what happened with us, what happened on YouTube. And a couple of projects we recently had been working on, like Tom did a super great video on or a super great intro using an AI nerf technology for flying through support structures. So a bit of AI nerf discussion and then a bit of rotary machining on the Snapmaker and also a discussion um, on if we could use the like rotary axis on the Snapmaker for some rotational 3d printing or even for axis 3d printing uh you gotta find out soon yeah of course discussions about how that would actually work but watch the episode um we also talk about other slices that are more two and a half d uh, oriented the new prusa slice 2.6 um prusa cad possibly being an option there uh simplify 3d v5 is, sim is, is simply is finally out um and lychee slicer now is an option for fdm printers so more options but also perhaps fewer than before because some of those aren't really viable anymore and as a final topic um physical meetups the the Rocky Mountain Rapper Festival is happening. We discuss what, what the plans are and maybe there's even going to be a Bay Area Maker Fair in a completely new style from when it happened last time. Yes, it has been a while. It has. I can't, I can't really remember when we released the last episode, but I think it was in October or November. No, I, I think the last recording, because I, I checked the recording settings and we had to figure some stuff out just to get this working again, was <laughs> November 22nd, I think we recorded. Okay. So, yeah. Just after form next or before form next? Man. Where, where have we been? <sighs> I mean, the, the Drown drowning in, 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 in work and self-questioning <laughs> yeah both of us so surprisingly at the same time uh for, for me it was just the the decompression after having to move out of the studio and just not being stressed out of your, out of your mind anymore and, and all of a sudden you, you like think about like what what am i doing like uh, is is this working out for me why does my shoulder hurt? That's the that's the other thing. I've I've got a I've got a busted shoulder, and it, like every year, it's coming back, and it's it's in in pain to a point where I'm I'm not able to use a mouse for a couple of weeks a year. Uh, so that's not optimal for for producing content. Um, nah. It it kind of sounds like the phenomenon that you're always getting sick once you take a vacation. Yeah. Because you were stressed out all of the time and just worked your ass off. And then vacation starts and everything just falls apart. Yeah. Uh, you, your body claims what it needs, even if you don't want it to. Yeah. Uh, so that's been me. You've been, you've been pretty stressed out as well. Um, yeah, just having like two jobs and a family turns out to be quite a ton of work yeah. and I don't know at, at some point it it just takes a toll on you um, 
it's like, oh yeah, but you're a YouTuber. You've got the you've got the best life. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> well, you've got some obligations too. <laughs> but let's not let's not dwell on that because people don't don't like yeah. it when we when we complain. We, we're not supposed yeah. to complain. We're just supposed to suck it up. So, but just <laughs> maybe quickly staying on that topic. So, for me, getting to like my Christmas vacation that was for I think three weeks where I also wasn't at like normal work. Um, I really didn't do any like long form video YouTube stuff. And that feel kind of good because you could, I was finally able to, to finish a couple of things and also start a couple of things that I always wanted to, which is uh, I did, I think two or three short videos over, over Christmas and even though that's that's not really the format that I want to do in the future, it was something different for me because if I had an idea, I was able to put that into a, a short form video in like a matter of hours or just yeah. a day, which is which kind of feels feels cool because um, I always struggle with like long projects and things like that i want to finish stuff and then just move on and just in the morning have an <laughs> yeah. idea idea record something and and finish the video at night is something that i otherwise don't have that's what my, my early videos used to be as well um like the six seven minute explainer videos how to calibrate your extruder those those sort of early <laughs> early videos where it was just reproducing stuff i already knew where i didn't have to do any any research or experiments for it um that was fun like i start saturday morning typically uh write a <laughs> script in the in the morning uh film in the afternoon edit until 9 p.m and then hit publish at 11 and yeah. just have a have a video done in a day i think that's that's nice that's quick um there might not be much of a market for those simpler videos anymore, but with with shorts and TikTok and and all that sort of stuff coming up, um, I guess that market is being created. Like people are expecting you to have shorter stuff that's not in, as in depth. Um, so I think our core audience mostly hates shorts videos, and I honestly. I tend to watch them way more than I did in the past because they're now way better integrated in YouTube and there's there's a bigger market so they're I've also watched maybe three in total. Oh no, I sometimes I really binge them um because just, then you watch one, one and okay. the algorithm knows what you like and then you have second one third and shit. <laughs> now again like 10 minutes are gone. Um but I think so so far the feedback from my core audience wasn't that positive because they don't like the format. Yeah, um, of course they don't like it because they came to you for your long-form, in-depth content. That's what they're subscribing to you for, right? Yeah. And but I honestly hate the um, the uh, just browser YouTube app at the moment because shorts and long-form videos are not separated in my subscription feed. Mm, and yeah. if I currently look at my feed, it's 50% just shorts videos and I, I don't want to watch them. But nobody used the subscription feed anyway, right? Um, I do. It's it's you. Well, you do. You're you're an exception. Like if, if look at your stats. Like subscription feed is like five percent. Uh, it's yeah. it's all recommendations, front page, that yeah. sort of stuff. Subscription feed. Uh, yeah. 
I don't know how much longer that thing's going to be around, especially now that YouTube has a new CEO. Um, Susan, uh, what's her full name? Uh, Step down as CEO. Um, She's been in charge of of steering that that YouTube ship for the last seven or eight years. Yeah. And it's it's easy to... to, um, to point to all the things that you don't like about the platform and say, yeah, she 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 was the one who who ruined it. I I also see the the voices who are saying like, yeah, but remember, she created one of the most long lasting social media platforms that actually created a sustainable models for model uh, a sustainable model for creators to stay on the platform. Yeah, and that's quite the achievement too. Like yeah. I'm I'm. Uh, f- I'll be the last one to admit that YouTube is flawless, but also like it's my job and it, it managed to be my job for the last year. So uh, something, she did something right. She definitely did something yeah. right because if, if you take a look at all of the, the, uh, the other platforms, they, they're hip for a couple of years and then nobody cares anymore. YouTube has been like on top of the game for, for a decade. Um, and the reason for that is that they created this this ecosystem, this creator ecosystem, um, where content creators are, are getting paid for what they're doing. Um, and this is the reason why new and good content is being released there. If you, of course, TikTok is is nice and you can gain a ton of traction in like no time. But if you're not doing any like sponsored integrations and ads and things like that. TikTok's not going to pay you anything, barely anything. Yeah. So and they, yeah, it's the the sustainable model. It's the, the the question is like, what is it for you? Is it a job or is it just a hobby? Is it something yeah. you do for fun? And TikTok probably is great for that, um, but I, I I don't see the model how you're going to make a living off of that. Um, you can, you definitely can, but not because. TikTok is paying you. TikTok, they are providing a platform that you can use to basically run ads for others and and earn an income okay. that way. So it's it's all sponsorship based. It's mainly sponsorship okay. based. Um, the the amount of money that you can earn there is practically nothing uh, to I, be honest. Because I was wondering, like, can you? How can you do an ad read in a sixty second or thirty second video? Is it is it just going to be all this is a sp- completely sponsored video in, in your feed now? That's it's different. It's different, to be honest. Um, to, I to, don't to be fully see honest that... here is I've, I've not used TikTok at all. <laughs> <laughs> I do once. have a TikTok channel and I think three videos on there. Um, TikTok is not only uh, not anymore only 60 seconds, so you can do longer True. format, yet portrait mode videos there. Um, I don't use TikTok at all, to be honest, um, because... I don't like the content at all there. Um, I do watch YouTube shorts and the ad integrations are just way shorter or just like a whole video about something, something in the end. And um, I don't know how much they're going to pay for that because if I look, so I had basically two shorts videos explode in January. I got 10 million views on one video. But the audience is so different. Of course. <laughs> so of course. different to to my core audience. There and and also not in the group that have a ton of money. So they are like fourteen to eighteen mainly. Mm. 
advertisers or not so, not worth advertising to for advertisers yeah. Yeah. ad rates going to be different but on the other hand if you're doing beauty products or i don't know things that are <sighs> i don't know there's there's been People some can live from that. some controversy about how exactly ad funds are distributed to creators uh, on YouTube because it's like the first ad you see when entering the shorts feed goes to YouTube exclusively doesn't it yep. doesn't get split up then there's like the entire a part of that that earning goes to music licenses and then the rest is split 50-50 between YouTube and yep. you so in the end it's like a what is it? 60, 40, 60 percent for the creator, forty for the for YouTube. And on I think the videos. other way around. I think the other way around. Uh, on no, regular videos. On regular videos, sixty percent um, to to creators, forty percent to YouTube. I think shorts is fifty fifty. No, that's it's music. I don't know, um, but it's like it's a ridiculously small percentage of the the actual ad revenue that goes to creators. It is, but on the other hand, if you, well, of course they are providing a platform. And just all of the infrastructure behind that sure, sure, also sure. costs like a, like a ton of money. So, and in the end, it's it's way more than Meta or or TikTok or any other company is Meta, paying. Me, so. me, Meta are charging you eight bucks a month to even have an account, or <laughs> well, to even have a proper account. Now. God, that, that 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 entire plus or whatever it's called, um, yeah. blue on Twitter or, or Facebook plus, or whatever. Ah. Yeah. ah. Ah. <laughs> anyway, so, let's let's do some. I I, I want to do some three D printing topics. Yeah, let's let's do some three D printing. Yeah. Um, let's let's maybe start with. Well, should I start with this one? God, this this, this episode's all over the place. Sorry, we're, 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 we're trying to get place. back into a groove, into a regular all over the place groove. May, maybe just a short <laughs> one because I really enjoyed that on on your last video, and we talked about that in the past, and that was. Nerfs, which is neural. Tell me what it means. Uh, neural radiance fields. Exactly. In the beginning, I thought this was just a different way to 3D scan something, but I finally understood that it's it's not creating like a 3D model of a of a scene, but it's calculating frames in bit or at locations where we you didn't take a video it's, or didn't didn't take a shot. It, well. Yeah, that that could still be 3D scanning. Um, I tried to explain it, and I, I'm not sure I fully grasped it yet. But it basically the nerf, the the the, the model you get. Um, I'm using Nvidia's Instant Nerf, which is like the most accessible one. If you, if you want to try it out, uh, Instant NGP. Um, it's like a 10 minute setup, and that's it. It takes a ton of compute power. So Threadripper and 3090 on my side were completely uh what's it called bonked for three hours so <laughs> um yeah uh, it's, it's super easy to set up but the 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 model basically takes the same input data as a 3d scan so a couple of frames around your your part but it doesn't is it frames or do you need a whole video um the so the the nvidia process um extracts frames from a video or you can give it frames directly okay so it's it's instant uh instant in it's single frames yeah okay um and then it doesn't care much about the 3d geometry in the end it can extract 3d geometry from the model it's building but basically it's trying to i don't want to say understand because it's it's not a model that thinks but it's trying to make sense of how different perspectives of different areas look and that is not about 
uh, the, the actual geometry, though it does reconstruct some geometry. It's more about, you know, for, for example, reflections. Um, if there's a, a plane in front of you, and if you look at it from this angle, there's a blue thing reflecting out of it. And if you look at it from another angle, there's a red thing reflecting out of it. It learns that this point right here, if you, if you look at it from the top, has a different color or a different uh, albedo, whatever, from that perspective. And so for... For basically different areas of the 3D scene, it tries to match basically its understanding of what each area looks like from different angles to the input frames you're giving it. Um, so by extension, it can blend between those perspectives um, and say, okay, from, from this one angle, it looks blue. From this angle, it looks red. So in between, it's probably going to be purple. Yeah. Um, and it does that from input frames. So yes, you're right. It can reproduce perspectives that are not in the input data set but just the same way as with 3d scanning if you if you give it a perspective that you didn't capture in the input data set mm. um for example from the back that that intro scene that i did for precious size 2.6 was only done from the front only from the angles that I, I knew i needed um from the back it looked completely useless or from just slightly above the entire mm. model would turn like a, a uniform blue mm. instead of having those those specular reflections so it's it's cool because you only you only need to give it those perspectives that you're later going to use so for that mm. scene i knew i was going to give it i was going to have a fly through from the bottom somehow so yeah. i only gave it frames from the front and then you reconstruct it uh or you let the program reconstruct it you can create a camera path, and of course, from there, you, you just get your rendered images, and you can do with those whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So what what you basically did is, if you listeners haven't haven't watched the video, go watch at least the intro of Tom's Prusa Slicer 2.6 video. You the next one's going to have a, a nerf intro as well. Not, ah, not, not as good, but it's just, it's just fun to make those. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a cool thing. And um, yeah, we, we talked about that before you started recording. Um, sometimes taking the time to do and learn things that you enjoy is really relaxing and motivating. Yeah. So anyways, what you basically did is you did a fly through through the organic support structure of the 3D print, which would hardly be possible to do with like a, a real camera because you would need like an objective that was able to to go in there yeah and it was just Im impressive to see and <laughs> i think it was so well done it was so well done and if there would not have been like the rendered 2.6 and reflection yeah, and i think text something in like there, that, yeah people wouldn't have noticed they if somebody would be would do a bit of i don't know video filming and photography and things like that uh, uh, themselves, they would have asked themselves, "How did you do that?" And when I first saw your video, I thought you bought one of these, the probe lenses, fancy, fancy probe lenses, and and did that. But no, that that's not necessary anymore. And this is so impressive. And I think you also said that on a previous episode, you could basically, if you, if you're doing a review of a printer. Um, scan it from all of the sides and then afterwards you can do basically a fly through yeah of you, the whole printer you can you can have a fly through like an that, that that's what i'm thinking about like have a have a printer and have a, a complete like robotic yeah. 
I was I was wanting to do that that motion controlled robot thing. Now now Brendan is doing it, and he's probably doing it way better than I ever could have. Um, but yeah, I, that's basically that that use case: have motion controlled camera moves that you can do, and you don't need to actually get a camera there physically. Um, like yeah, sure, the probe lens. It, I don't think it would have fit through those organic supports. But even no, if it, it would not. That was the thing. I, I thought, wow, how did you do that? Um, and even if it would have, um, with uh, with the nerfs, you can render uh, depth of field. You can you can get a nice blurry background. The probe lens, I think, is an f sixteen. So okay. like, it's going to be super dark, and it's going to yeah. be everything's going to be in focus almost. Yeah. Um, you can just set your aperture size in, in the nerf uh, <laughs> in the nerf render, and it's like, yeah, make it as blurry as you want. Um, I will say, though, the quality of output that I'm getting is not super detailed. Um, I think from the so the 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 representation the 3D representation isn't super highly detailed. Um, for me, I think it would work for like a, up to a 720p render and it would look basically as good as a real video. But what I had to do is I had to send it through Topaz Video AI. AI video AI and that worked really well because the the 3d print kind of had like nice sharp corners and, and smooth surfaces and it did a, a good job reconstructing that from the originally blurry render um, now the next one I'm doing from uh, as a fly through of the snapmaker that didn't turn out so well um, it's a bit more blurry and I really couldn't get it to reconstruct that well in, in video AI that is sort of the, the downside you're not going to get a super crisp output there might be ways to tweak it but I couldn't make it work but in the end who cares because if you don't have YouTube premium anymore it anyway just defaults you to 720p really? Uh, nah. I, I think there was a rumor about that uh, but I don't know. I, okay. I I do have a subscription. Most people watch on 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 mobile. And so the other and the other e-box. half just watches it on on their on their phone, and those scenes are anyway so short that you don't. Well, that if you have not done it yourself, you don't have enough time to figure out does that look right or it doesn't that look yeah. right. It just needs to look good enough to. Yeah, just to, to make an impressive shot. So yeah. I'm I'm excited to see what you, what you're coming up with in the next one. Yeah, so next one's gonna be the the four axes snap makery stuff. Um, posted a bunch of teasers about that, and that's been you you've already hinted at that. Like the the nerf, um, that's been something that I've that I've been just enjoying. Uh, there's no. Well, I guess the the push size two point six video is doing pretty well, so it might that it might have something to do with that. That like people are seeing the interest and they're going like, "Wow, this dude really knows what he's doing." Um, but really, it's just been something that I've wanted to try out, that I've seen, that I've I've had some interest in. I've been playing with Stable Diffusion, of course. I've been playing with with ChatGPT once that came out. Um, just new tools that are available. Just <laughs> I think the same as everyone does. Trying it out, trying to make use of it, and seeing where the limits are, and, and trying to understand like what is this thing that is that is happening right now. Um, and yeah, so all the I, th- I think I've I've said this before, but I don't I don't think we should be calling these things AI tools because that would infer that there's intelligence there, which there is not. It's really just 
a different way of computing that's you know with with stable diffusion and and chat gpt really just an autocomplete on on steroids um anyway it's fun to play with it's it's a it's a new way of, of looking at things and it's been fun to to add that to my workflow and just try it out because i've been i've been making videos for almost almost a decade more than a decade now i don't know it's been a while and it's it's you sort of know the process by now right you you, yeah. you know what you're doing more or less and it's so much just mechanical work um that it does take the fun out of it and, and these sort of things you know you spend a day or two and it's just something you, you're engaged with um I guess let's jump into the, the the rotary axis stuff because that's that's also something that you enjoyed. Yeah. Four axis machining. Four axis machining. Four axis cam or cam in general in fusion is is just it's fun. It's something to learn about and seeing the machine work is so. Just to, to set the stage here, I've had my Snapmaker A two fifty T for a while. I've unboxed that mid last year i think and the rotary axis has been in the box unused for the for the longest time to finally unbox it did some stuff did some let me hold it up to the camera so what you're seeing now for the audio listeners is a tamper handle for uh, espresso baskets basically it's missing the actual tamper platform here but it's it's hollowed out um you can see straight through it it's, it's sort of skeletonized and that's been something that i've i've you know went to step by step there were some some mishaps where i I couldn't really free it from its from its shell and it's it's split in half in the lathe but just trying those things and and experiencing the machine working from the cam from the g-code that he created it's that same mesmerizing thing that he had when you first started out 3d printing and you you were just staring into the machine for hours um and i'm kind of getting that back and that's that's fun that's just (laughs) Yeah, that, that that playfulness is is sort of coming back. So, first question: Why did you use Fusion for a cam and did not use Snapmaker's Luban or how's it called? Um, I don't have a beep button here, but uh, <laughs> the the insult that it would spew towards uh, the four axis tool or the four axis processing at Luban um, would not be safe for <laughs> for any podcasting platform or <laughs> uh, or YouTube. Uh, Luban is not usable. Like. Don't don't get me wrong. It's 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 cool that they're including something, but if you want to do more than engrave pictures on on a cylinder, like it's completely useless. Um, okay. Something like this, no way. So this is this is with just a bit of sanding, but like the the inside surfaces here on the uh, on the cutouts, completely untouched. Yeah, you would never get this this cleanly out of Luban. So it doesn't have any any strategies, any adaptive clearing. It doesn't have. Um, rest machining, uh, finishing, roughing, nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just one pass that follows the contour, and that's it. Yeah. And that just, like, n- no way. Like, if you look at the at the stock material here, this is what I started with, and I'm turning this out of. I'm not going to do a 10 millimeter depth of cut in hardwood <laughs> on, on that machine. Uh-uh. <laughs> that machine, yeah. Not not happening. Um, so yeah, Snapmaker's tool useless. Like. Don't don't bother using it. Um, go to Fusion. I, yeah, I had the same experience when... Haha, go to Fusion. <laughs> I had the same experience when I tried or when I reviewed my Snapmaker also, I think, last year, beginning of last year. Don't remember it anymore. Um, 
I don't know, for basic things. And if you're a beginner, it might be okay to make some nice looking things if you have a ton of time. Something like that is just, just not possible. And I was happy that Snapmaker provided the, is it called libraries in Fusion? Or uh, the post-processors. Yeah, yeah, the setup. The um, setup. It's basically, it's a Fanuc uh, post-processor basically that they're using. <laughs> <laughs> but they've 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 got it on their website. You can just download, plug it into yeah. Fusion, and it's gonna work for the most part. Yeah. You're still gonna have to do your work setups and stuff, but that's you have to do that on any on any CNC machine. Yeah. But the thing is, with standard Fusion with the three three with the free Fusion three sixty, horrible just to say, <laughs> uh, you don't get any mm, four axis machining. You only get three axis machining. Um, okay. This is this is interesting, and I, I don't touch on that in, in the video, I think. But I'm so I'm I'm an influencer. I've got the Fusion three hundred and sixty influencer full license thing, um, and I think I've used some of the four axis, or I've used the multi axis toolpaths. But you don't really need them. Um, you can get pretty much the same results with the three uh, D toolpaths, and you can use those with basically the fourth axis at a set position. You can add mm -hmm. a tool orientation mm -hmm. and you can tell it, do this tool path at 30 degrees tilt. Okay. And then you can do a rotary pattern in this case, you know, every uh, 60 degrees. No, yes, yeah. every 60 degrees with six cutouts. Um, you can repeat that same tool path or you can do basically a, a linear tool path going, going over this, mm. over that way. So those are not really four-axis toolpaths or five-axis okay. multi-axis simultaneous machining toolpaths. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's there's any. Yeah, even the the, the ones that I used earliest when it's like, oh yeah, I've, I've got multi-axis. I'm going to have to use the the multi-axis toolpaths. There were only three axes moving at the same time. So it was mm -hmm. either the rotary axis and then the axis axis was mm -hmm. locked in place and it was just following this way. Mm -hmm. uh, it was never four-axis simultaneous. Yeah. Those you really only need for super specific use cases. Yeah. Um, cool. I also have the fourth axis, but I I did not get it out of the box yet. I, I think it has been sitting in my basement for for over a year now. Unfortunately, yeah. but but you've got the to... you've got the bigger one, right? You've got the three fifty. I got the three fifty. Yes. Yeah. That gives me a bit more space. Yeah. I... Also less rigidity. Is is your your 250 is it the cantilever design or is it the full gantry it's just the moving bed the bed slinger design okay what do you mean cantilever that's the so, i think that's the 150 okay yeah the 150 yeah. um the problem though is uh, this 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 could be a this could be a long rant the snap maker is just uh, it does i i know that the results look impressive but it's just, it's not a machine that is done well for this sort of, of cutting job because you mount the, first of all, the, the, the A250, it has the rotary axis, the same rotary axis, but it's a shorter distance between the spindle yeah. and the tailstock. And your effective usable length is like four and a half centimeters. Mm -hmm. So from, from the tool colliding with the chuck and the tailstock, it's four and a half centimeters of, of usable range. So what I already did on mine is I slid the rotary tool back off of the platform they give you. I'm just using two of the mounting holes instead of four. 
um, so that I can machine this much. And this is the, the whole extent of what it can get on there. Like the okay. tailstock is, is right here. And then okay. on this side, you can see you can see that the, the chuck was, was clamping onto this and I did a bit of clearance so I could cut in here without the, the tool colliding with the, with the, with, um, sorry, with the, uh, with the chuck. It, you, you barely get any space here. Um, and then the way that some of the things are handled, like it's, it's nice that you get a tool change assistant, um, but you're supposed to use a piece of paper on your already machined workpiece. Mm -hmm. On something like this, like you, you touched on with your tool, you set that as zero, you, it lifts up, you change the tool, you set it back down. On this, there's no even surface. There's no, mm. you know, yeah, there's, there's no way to set zero. And they could have done it a lot better in a lot of ways. The bed is, is wobbly, the tailstock is wobbly. It's just, you have to make so many compromises and you have to make so many, uh, it, it, it all feels hacky. Like there's there's no way to align the tool to to your your rotary axis. Mm. It's you really need to know what you're doing to get a good result, or I don't know. You 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 might just get lucky. Yeah. Um, the Snapmaker is a jack of all trades, master of none. It yeah. supposedly can do everything, and if you are patient and if you don't have a ton of space. I think it can be a really fun machine, but if you are expecting to do to, if you're expecting it to perform as good as a good good CNC router, a good CNC, uh, a good laser engraver, and a good three three D printer, yeah. you're gonna be disappointed. And that's the thing because uh, s some some properties or some specs of these machines just contradict themselves. And this is then the problem in the end. Weight, rigidity. Yeah. Um, you, you, you can optimize for it being a 3D printer, but mm -hmm. by doing that, you're going to optimize against it being a good CNC. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what, what trips me up about the Snapmaker is, is not that it's... I mean, look, don't get me wrong. It's an okay 3D printer, and I, I say that in the video too. It's an okay 3D printer. It's an okay laser cutter. It's an okay CNC. It's not good at any of those, but it's if you in, in a pinch, you can use them for those applications. But it's just with a bit more care and a bit more attention to detail, they could have made it a good CNC, one that's, that's more usable by, for example, allowing you to somehow align your tool. Um, to, to home your tool into a work coordinate system, um, w especially on the rotary axis where that one flat surface they could have used to align it to the spindle, like the, the top mm -hmm. surface of that rotary axis, that could have been a known distance from, from the, mm -hmm. the actual axis. Instead, they put like a little groove in there. So there's no flat surface on there at all to, to align the tool to. It's like they, they, they have good tools. They have a good understanding of like how to design stuff they just don't know what they're designing and that's something that that's bothering me about quite a few quite, quite a few import tools quite a few quite a few chinese tools where it's like they they did the 80 percent where it's like mm. they did their homework but they didn't actually use it and refine it but this is i think something naomi said a while back that from her experience engineers and and people in like the chinese making industry many of them they're not like 
passionate passionate makers yeah um who design something try it out and then improve on it um and this leads to problems like like you're having that you always have either a total disconnect between the people that test it and the ones who design it or that you don't basically do any a ton of testing at all in the end that you design things that look good on paper but if you really try them out there are many flaws with it yeah and this probably isn't just a, a you know design in china kind of thing it's look at my at my office job in the automotive industry i i got that same feeling where it's like you do your job um you do whatever the customer wants or the customer as in the company you were the company that's going to be buying the parts from you in the end um you do whatever they want in their specs in their spec sheet but it's not your job to question whether what you're designing actually makes sense you just do your job you design so that your superiors are happy that your project managers are happy and once they give you the, the green checkbox you move on there's I, i i don't think people especially now that, that like everything is so hyper competitive i don't think people really care anymore about the stuff they're doing especially once it's on a on a scale where there's like i said where there's competition and i think uh, also that that a ton of things are outsourced that you don't have a ton of feedback in the end um and this is something that i really enjoy in my job especially when we we were starting with metal additive manufacturing i was doing design i was doing part preparation but i was also like standing at the machine printing parts depowdering parts looking what failed and what worked which helped us a ton in getting the process going and and de designing better parts in it in the end that the engineers were also like manufacturing stuff and yeah finding out what works and works not i'm totally aware that something like that is is hardly always possible yeah i, I was gonna say that that's probably a luxury to have that definitely your, your, your process is so compact that you can do that that you can have one person who understands the entire thing from design to application You need the right engineers for that um, in terms of their skill set, but also in their interest. I know other engineers that who are wear, wearing shorts, uh, a shirt, sorry, not shorts, sh a shirt, and who, who, who would not really like to stand in front of the machine getting powder all over them or, I don't know, breaking parts of a, of a build platform. Uh, they want to design parts, but they don't really want to know how they're manufactured and things like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, this is this is something that I enjoyed and I think helped us a ton. But when you're getting big, when you're growing bigger and bigger, at some point, it's just not, not possible anymore. But this is the thing that I really enjoy, like in my professional job and also in my YouTube job, that I yeah. basically have control over everything, even though if that's <laughs> from like a business perspective something really horrible that i do everything but yeah. it helps me to tune everything in and and i enjoy understanding the whole process chain yeah and this way uh gain knowledge and also to make the process more efficient and to learn and things like that so yeah um yeah and like, like i said that's a that's a luxury to have um there there are certainly benefits to it 
but at, at some point at some scale it's just it's just not possible to have that anymore right? yeah um Go, going back to my automotive job, uh, I think the the suppliers making uh, like metal powder inductors, they don't know how they're going to be used in the end in a power supply for, for some amplifier that's that's going to be having this sort of low profile. They're not going to be able to optimize for that use case in the end. Uh, it's just, just not possible. And in the Is that end, possible? And that's the reason why you have a specification. Exactly. In in the end, you have your spec sheet. Um, yeah. You 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 get your Lastenheft. What's what's it called in English? Uh, your your list of requirements, basically. Yeah. That if you hit those marks, then your job is done. And but that requires that both the Lastenheft, the list of requirements, and the specification includes everything. And yeah. If there's something that's not accounted for then this doesn't work anymore that that is that is very true yeah and it, <laughs> uh I, I i could tell some stories here but <laughs> didn't so for example i th i think i read this today somewhere on the news bmw or audi or vw some of them said that they gonna develop their new electric drive trains totally in-house because they see efficiency benefits up to like 20% doing everything in-house and maybe not have the problem that you need to write a specification, need to be sure that everything is in there and over-specify stuff or exactly. not speci specify things at all because you can iterate way quicker even though that requires that you do anything yeah, it's everything like, in-house. It's, it's overhead both on the on the side of, of you trying to spec it and on the side of, of the company who's actually developing it. Yeah. Um, so in 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 my case, uh, I'm not I'm not going to name the, the customer here, but we were getting we were getting uh, specifications from the customer for I'm just going to say a thousand watts um, of output power. So they 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 probably intentionally overspec that a thousand watts on an, on an audio system is crazy. Like if you have any sort of efficient drivers, you, you're going to blow people's uh, eardrums out. But they, they specified a thousand watts. So we were like, okay, thousand watts. Yeah, we can do that for two seconds um, <laughs> because it wasn't specified for how long mm. that output power would, would need to, to be maintained. So we engineered for two seconds because, I mean, realistically, if you have a, a, an audio driver with an efficiency of, I don't know, 80%, that's, that's really good. Uh, that's... 200 watts of, of losses like look at your cpu cooler for 200 watts there's no way you can do that in an automotive temperature range um in a package that's as, as big as a as a 4080 um so yeah those those loopholes people are going to find them um and people are going to make use of them and then on the other end you have to account for them and you when, when you're specifying stuff there's so much communications overhead, but that's a that's probably a different topic. <laughs> that's definitely a different topic. Maybe staying on the uh, on the topic of of uh, uh, Snapmaker and rotary machining. The thing I wanted to do with my rotary reaccess is rotary 3D printing. Did you think about that? Yes, I did. But does the machine allow it? Because the the Snapmaker goes into it has it's canvas, right? The entire machine is canvas. As far as I understand it, every every axis Probably. is a CAN connector. Um, so yeah, the drivers yeah. are in the axes, and the the plugs you plug into. There we go. I think the bed is the one that's that's like completely analog, which is the one I have here. But the drivers and the 
So the linear axis, the rotary axis, the tool bus are all CAN bus. Um, so if it detects that the uh, rotary axis is installed with the CNC tool, and it's like, hey, I'm a CNC now. I'm in CNC mode. And it's only going to read your .cnc files and not .g code. Does it actually allow you to use the rotary axis in 3D printing mode? So when I received my fourth axis, Snapmaker had either in, on their product page or somewhere a video where they did rotary 3D printing. Oh, then it should work. It it should maybe work. Um, I don't know if that was just like a, a demonstration uh, and it, it looked nice, but that's, I think I remember I have seen and I wanted to try it out and, and thought about ways on how to do it and what the the problems are that you're gonna uh that you're gonna run into because one of the things is that depending on your distance to your rotation center uh the extrusion amount needs to be adjusted because i don't know the the length of a full rotation 10 millimeters away from the rotation axis is way shorter yeah. than 100 millimeters away and if you're using like a normal linear slicer you would need to, um, I don't know, do do some kind of G-code post-processing to, depending on your Z-position, adjust the flow or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, if you want to reproduce something that is like dimensionally accurate, you would have to pre-warp your STL uh, to basically, if you slice for 2D, it would need to taper and, and get thinner towards the yeah. top. Um, which, I mean, not impossible to do, right? With a bit of Python, you could you could probably post-process that. Yeah. Um, but, like, the, the question I have really is, does the machine allow it to do it? Because the the Snapbacker has its main board. It has the USB-C plug in the, in the side, but I don't know if you can actually plug in just a regular, you know, Prontoface host into that. Probably um, not. It... it so it has its control module, like a six-inch Android 7 tablet phone. Um, and that controls the entire machine. And it's really, you don't really get any direct control over the machine. Um, I don't know if, if you could control it through USB, I think you should be able to make it make it work. But with the module, if it doesn't think it should allow you to do it, you're not going to be able to do it. The question is, so would you be doing four axis printing or would you just do three axis printing and use for example instead of a y axis the rotary axis I, because i think that's that's low hanging fruit and that's what i would have started with because then you can just trick a normal slicer into generating g code for for that yeah um that probably make that work first that that, that would be my my thinking too um basically yeah you're still you're still just doing three axis printing um yeah the same, same, like I said, with um, Fusion, where you do basically a three-axis toolpath, but instead of using like the y-axis, you use the rotary axis. Yeah. Um, doing a full four-axis, we we get into the same challenges that we see with every non-planar slicing approach. Where, yes. how do you determine which angle, which part should be printed at? Because that that's really what it comes down to. Um, yeah. The five-axis demo that we saw at Earth. 
does have the workflow with um, what's full it control. No, not not with full control, but with uh, ah, Rhino, with, uh, Rhino, Rhino, and Grasshopper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that that hardly is a slicer. That's more of like a generative G code approach. Yeah, um, and. The, this is this is another thing that I thought about. Like, how how would you implement non-planar slicing? This is just shower thoughts at this point. Um, and I I don't think it should be this hard to implement. But you could do non-planar. I know we, we're skipping topics here. We're, we've got so much so much so much stuff to talk about that's just built up over these months. I'm sorry. Um, non-planar slicing, right? Um, the the question is always like, how do you determine which wh- which angle, which parts of the model should be printed at? My camera's already flickering again. Wow. Um, so my thought was, let's stick with a, a, a traditional Cartesian XYZ 3D printer first. My thought was, we co- basically, we look at the model, we look at the angles that our facets are at, um, and we create basically a flow field. We create a separate 3D voxel field around the around the part, and we determine okay, this would be the optimal angle. So each voxel gets a vector of like the optimal printing angle. Um, then we fill the inside of the part, basically as an extension of the surface. We fill the inside of the part with that same flow field, and then you go up from the bottom and you you, you limit the, the angles that can that that subsequent layer can be at. So let's say you always start at a flat angle, and then as you move up, you can sort of transition into, let's say, up to a 30-degree angle that you could do with a pointy tool head. You transition to that. And it doesn't have to be planar because it's a, it's a field. It can, you know, your, your layers can flow through that. I You look like I'm losing you. No, it's, it's totally <laughs> fine. Um, so basically have that, have that approach and have the layers morph as you go up the part. Um, yeah. And and keep modifying that flow field until you get something that is within the limits of what the machine can handle. Yeah. And I guess by extension you could you could extend those limits to include more rotary axes, more more mm-hmm. more access to the model. Yeah. That would be something that I think could be could be a universal solution to multi-axis slicing. Yeah. And before we what we've seen so far has always been either a handcrafted um what we've had at at Formnix, i think where it's where it's literally a robot that can do like pipes that snake through the air but that's that's literally handcrafted g-code or you say okay this part is going to be printed with this orientation and then you slice off a part and you reorient and you print onto the model yeah. and it's not one continuous print so I don't know. I've, I've I've thought about like how could I could I program this myself, but it's probably a bit too much for me. Probably it's probably a bit, a bit too bit much, and the yeah, I think rate. the problem is once you start, you notice how many edge cases there are and how simple just normal two point five D slicing is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you just you just want to leave and and cry. Yeah, like uh, the, the the thing that obviously comes up is, is collisions. Like, no. what if you have? I'm, I've I've got this power supply sitting here. What if you have two prongs or two fingers no. that are next to each other and they no. twist like a DNA helix? They no. twist in different ways. Like this this area would be printed like that, and then the other one would be printed the exact mm. opposite way, and you'd, you'd no. crash into the thing that's already printed. It's not. It's not easy. It's it's definitely not easy, and I have already, I have already talked about that in a pa- in the past. 
who has currently the incentive to do this kind of development? If you are a printer manufacturer, so the only one who could have an incentive for that, who creates a machine that is specifically designed for a non-planar printing approach with the nozzles, the cooling system, and, and everything that needs to needs to work or needs to be specific for, for that approach. Um, and then you have your slicer that uses your freedoms of your extrusion system. Uh, but I don't know, Prusa slicer, they won't be implementing something like that because if you look at a... a Prusa Mark III print head, it's basically like two millimeters over yeah. the print surface. You can't do any um, any non-planar printing there. And um, I also talked to a guy who did a lot of non-planar slicing in the past, but he also said his problem is funding. If he does the same job for an established company, he gets paid a shit ton of money to implement that in their in their software so the only re or the only possibility he would see it for him personally is if he would be able to 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 fund his work in a way but if you take a look yeah. at what s good software engineers earn in a month uh you need a ton of patron money for that yeah. <laughs> um which is kind of unfortunate um I well, we get to that in a second. I was hoping that I don't know, Simplify or some other slicer would implement at least a teeny tiny bit of non-planar slicing in uh, in their slicer because I think this would have been a feature that would have set them apart from all of the other free ones. But yeah, wasn't there, and I think there's. It's also the problem that you need to pay attention that you make sure that every edge case is is looked out for and uh, you need so many parameters like how is your print head formed how wide is the nozzle tip what's your nozzle diameter what's the yeah. nozzle angle where blah 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 blah, blah. so exactly. it's, it's, it's just complicated and it's 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 also a chicken and egg problem to a to an extent um yeah like I said, with with like a Mark III or so many other tool heads, you have you're trying to get the fan shroud as close to the nozzle as possible. So you you can't actually do it without modifying your machine. So yeah. what incentive is that for uh, for a slicer producer programmer to implement that functionality when nobody can use it? Like I said, it wouldn't need to be a company who makes a printer specific for that, yeah. who also makes a slicer for it. But that's a, that's a very limited set of. Uh, yeah maybe just a quick one right here um so when i thought about that um i know that some modern cat tools like um siemens nx for example does that i think fusion 360 also started doing that in in their beta or pre-release features um directed energy deposition slicing so if you have a a mig welder on a on a robot arm slicing for that 3d printing approach the multi-axis that, that that approach ded approach or that approach <laughs> no the, the ded approach okay. um and instead of just feeding 
metal wire to the um, to the welding head. Um, just either they have implemented to to use G1E something something, or to do a bit of post processing and just use the already existing tools. Uh, that are made for multi-axis 3D printing with uh, welding heads and see how that works on a Snapmaker, even though <laughs> the software probably uh. costs you like 100 grand or 50 grand or something like that just to see if that would be applicable on, on such a on such a system. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my first thought when he, when he asked, like, hey, how are you actually going to do the, the slicing for it? Was like, couldn't you just use... Uh, um, you know, an adaptive toolpath in reverse. <laughs> Just basically use a use a milling tool toolpath and have it extrude <laughs> material while, in, instead of milling it away. Which I I think with the right parameters you could kind of make it work. Um, you could make it work because they have the like constant um, chip width. Yeah, constant optimal load. load is, optimal is load. So it's it the the tool is always going to be in engagement by. A millimeter for example yeah um but it can also say if the tool head is in less engagement than a certain amount less than a millimeter mm. um skip that tool path so it's not yeah. going to be super clean but it might be something that he can do uh and you've got rest machining so in you know theoretically you, you can yeah. do like the cut apart off and, and yeah. do that at might be an option might be an option yeah it's, that's Pro that's a really interesting approach just de demill your part. Wasn't de there, uh, wasn't there this this weird three D facts kind of thing where you'd put a three D model into the machine and it would mill away one layer at a time and it scan it, uh, take a photo and send it to a different machine that would print that and then mill away another layer and. I think we even talked about this on the podcast. Okay, where I don't like remember a, it anymore. It might have been more art project than actual product, but. <laughs> kind of kind of the same thing new project demilling yeah um, not the worst idea I ne never thought about that but that uh, that would and the thing is autodesk has one of the patents for exactly doing that for 2.5d printing at first and then do a three-dimensional path over it hmm. so use fusion so Maybe you get around the patent. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, we, we, yeah. we were talking. We were talking about slices, and I guess this is one of the one of the actual topics that we've got today. Oh, yeah. um, there's there's three slicing topics in here. Um, so we've got pre slice two point six, which is yep. now in alpha four, um, and it's pretty cool. It's pretty neat. Uh, I, in my opinion, it's a, the organic supports are honestly. A game changer. They, so, they look really cool too. I mean, let's not forget about that. Yeah, n not only do they look cool, and that's that's definitely a thing. But um, when printing parts, prototypes for for geometries that were not designed for additive manufacturing, this supporting approach saves you. A ton of material at first and makes the re uh, and makes the re uh, supports uh, removable so much easier yeah. so it's not only cool for to take a look at them but if you have designs uh, be it artistic ones or just in a prototype shop um, where you just want to 
have a part and hold it in hand and take a look uh, at it. This is a game changer because before you either had the possibility to use soluble supports, which are a pain to work with, in my opinion. Yeah. You could use standard supports, but then most of the time you aren't able to remove all of the supports. And if you're able to do that, you break half of the tiny stuff that's in between. Your part looks horrible in the end because sometimes it fuses too much, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, though, um, though that, or, that I think is not something that is like specifically solved with organic support. It is, but but since they are grow, they try to grow away from the main structure, right. there are yes. way less contact points on the already existing model uh, with organic supports than we had in the past. Um, and for all of the models I tried it so far, it just looked it looked great. It saved a ton of time, and it was it it was so much more efficient. Yeah, and the the fact that the the individual trees, the individual branches are already kind of broken up for you um, makes removal yeah. a lot easier because it's it's not one big block that you're trying to chip yeah. away. It's you know if you've ever tried to to remove a support block, it's kind of like a almost like a styrofoam consistency that you're trying to dig through. Um, so you can you can most of the time they just fall off by themselves. Yeah. You, you give them a bit of a, of a of a lock and they pop off. Um, but yeah, material savings and all that it's pretty good. But let's not forget about the other features of of two point six as well. Um, the, the the embossing. The, yes, that text wrapping. <laughs> um, text wrapping. I, I pointed that out in the video. Like it's it's such a pain to do infusion and I, I i had an example in there where i tried to do the exact same thing in fusion and fusion just kept throwing errors because mm. the geometry wasn't perfectly suited for projecting the text to it mm. and this is one of the benefits of precisor kind of not being a cat tool it doesn't have mm. to work precisely it can just slap it on there and say mm. yeah this is good enough we're just going to project yep. it on there and like yeah that looks that looks all right um then you, you've got the splitting feature with pins. I think mm. that 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 actually is that is much bigger of a of a feature than people realize. Probably, um, yeah. It's it's just a pain to do in 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 CAD, splitting it, adding pins, and then doing like the uh, the boolean combine with its, mm. uh, and there you can just slice it in half, click click click, pins done. Yeah. So. The, the the thing that people have been discussing and, and I, I probably plan to see is like is there going to be Prusa CAD um, are we going to see a, a 1 to 3D design sort of tool from Prusa because the, the, the Prusa slicer is moving in that very direction even though the geometry engine behind it probably isn't made for it but the features are, are just coming to, together and we, we, we've seen people on, on Twitter post about uh, stuff they've designed exclusively in uh, in Prusa Slicer, like a mm. little heart vase where where they made mm. out of primitives, um, mm. cylinder cylinder cube made it made a little heart, um, warped that around a, a surface by by cutting away, used patterns and then had like a, a heart pattern on a vase. Never touched a cat tool. Used only mm. the tools, only the primitives included in Prusa Slicer, and I think yeah. that that's pretty cool. It's maybe not the job of a slicer, but it's pretty cool. Did it you... is really cool. I think it's. I think it makes it more approachable, and it's also nice to have it just in in one tool and don't have to switch between ones. I never used Tinkercad to be honest. Um, I'm, well, I grew up with 
CAD, CAD software, parametric CAD software. Yeah. So for me, working on on a mesh is is always a pain or is something that I just don't see in engineering. I When I was young, I programmed games and used yeah. Milkshape and Autodesk 3D Studio Max and things like that. That's... Yeah. That's where I started. So <laughs> I've been I've been modeling so much stuff and clicking all of the triangles by hand, placing points and, and th- so yeah. I know what a pain it is and but but I but I see applications for it when you're doing artistic stuff. When I design things I want this length to be five millimeters and this six millimeters and I don't know. That that's just how I was educated. Um but I know for a fact that for many it is kind of hard to start working with a parametric CAD software because it's so complex. So having possibilities like this in in Prusa Slicer is, in my opinion, a game changer. In um, professional additive manufacturing, um, for um, SLS printing and or also for direct metal DMLS printing, for metal 3D printing with powder, um, Materialized Magics is a very established software there because it it is also a great tool to work on meshes, to cut meshes, to uh, uh, do texts in there, to generate support structures, to um, align them, to orient them, and and all of that stuff. But this tool costs like I don't know tens of thousands of dollars in comparison yeah. to what Prusa Slice was doing now, and especially the embossing tool, there aren't that many other tools around that, that do such a great job. So, And that's the reason why I find it so interesting um, and opens the opportunity to just have a simple-to-use tool but also powerful tool that's that's accessible for everyone, which, is, which I really enjoy. So I really like to see the direction where um, Prusa is heading, and I kudos to them that, they pour that amount of money in in Prusa Slicer because um, this is what brings the industry forward. Um, and we see other tools adapting or adopting that. I don't know. Bamboo Lab or Bamboo Slicer has uh, integrated many, many of the things in there. But on the other hand, then... Prusa implemented the uh, um, step import, and if you look at organic supports, that's coming from from Cura and Arachne slicers also coming from Cura, and then probably things from Prusa slicers getting the get, getting back into Cura, and yeah. that mix up and open source mind is great for at least the users in the end. Yeah, how if sustainable is, it is for for the companies, I I don't know, and this is a this is a big topic that I'm very torn on. Um, maybe not something to discuss yeah. to discuss in this one, but for the moment, I highly appreciate what they're doing. Um, slicing one, I think two things are also really interesting. I uh, know three things. Um, the measuring tool, I love that. I was, I wanted to have that for for years because I use that in materialized magics in my professional yeah. work quite a bit. Just quickly measuring out stuff. It's not working as well as I wanted. 
uh, or as well as I'm used to use it in, in magics where you, it automatically recognizes, I don't know, um, circles and, and all That's of that stuff. That's the but exact same way that it works in NetFab, um, which yeah. is where I know the, the measurement tool from. Yeah. And NetFab is kind of going away, maybe. I, I've not used it much because the licensing is all weird now. Um, but yeah, NetFab has that same thing where it, where it does circles and you can do mm. distances between hole to hole mm. or surface to point and precise yeah. is really just point to point or, or, or triangle to triangle. It's, yeah. it's very, very primitive, but it's... It's the first release? That, and it's, that too, and there's, there's no other tool that can do that right now f yeah. as far as I'm aware of. Like everything else is just an STL viewer or a slicer, but no geometry inspection mm. tool in a way yeah i often did that measuring just in fusion 360 because in fusion 360 you can import the mesh and then use the inspection tool to also to a certain poly count up to a certain <laughs> poly count yeah um so great feature there also um i haven't used it myself speed adjustment depending on overhang angle that's right. something i that think either. comes from I know, I know that it. I know that it is in Bamboo Slicer, and Bamboo uses that quite a bit. But I think that's stemming from Super Slicer. And in Bamboo Studio, that really helps to to print even the steepest overhangs. To print parts with with very steep overhangs, where you would have cooling problems if you would print them too fast, to get still really nice results. So, yeah. good um, thing there. Yeah. Maybe maybe quick inter interjection here. Um, the who had it first? That's that's one of the points <laughs> I had it here. Um, so what what the the Prusa Slicer uh, developers um, pointed out of like saying, "Hey, you copied this from from Bamboo Slicer, Bamboo mm. Bamboo Studio." Studio. Um, is no, it was it was in the code base that Bamboo Studio is based on based on Prusa Slicer, it was in there the entire time, just Bamboo Studio enabled that feature. Like yep. it, it was in the code base of, of Prusa Slicer, but it, for the Prusa Slicer release, it was not enabled yet. For example, I think the, the hinting feature with which with like, hey, this might have overhangs that are too steep. Mm. So just pointing that out there, it's, I, I don't know who's copying from who, but like some things may just be in the open source code that's out there and just not visible in the actual end product. Yeah. Many of these these things can be accessed in Super Slicer, and I sometimes really enjoy using Super Slicer. But on the other hand, even though I like settings, Super Slicer sometimes overwhelms overwhelms me with settings. So, so one last feature that is already from Prusa Slicer two point five, and there wasn't a lot of recognition for it, but. This is, I think, in my opinion, a game changer for um, for Bowden-based printers. Is if you have a speed change in a printing move that you don't change the printing speed from one point to another, that you can enable a gradient, so it yeah it it slowly transitions from one speed to the other, and I think where you could potentially see a huge difference is if you use different speeds for the internal and external yeah. perimeters on the direct classic, printers the classic blobs on the surface where you go out yes. to yeah so on direct printers 
you often just print with a way higher speed the inner di uh, inner parameters in comparison to the outer parameters. I found it with Bowden printers, it works the best if you just have the same speed for all of the parameters because that yeah. speed change from very fast to slow will lead to a ton of overextrusion at the point where it gets to the outermost perimeter, which looks horrible on the surface. Yeah, so you you really want a and a, I, 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 a couple of years ago I think explain trying to explain that is like a Bowden system really is a constant pressure system yeah. if you if you want it because it has so much smoothing so much elasticity in the path between the extruder and the toolhead that really you can you can't directly control it yeah. though with um and, and this doesn't just apply to bowden printers but also to direct printers pressure advance is really you know if you have a a system that has pressure advance tuned in for for those of you who don't know it's uh it's basically okay how do i explain this without more technical jargon um it's a system that tries to predict the the delay and the lag and the transitions of your extruder from high pressure to low pressure, so high free feed rate to low feed rate, and tries to apply the exact opposite of, of how it's lagging behind. Um, so yeah. with a pressure advance, if you go from a low feed rate to a high feed rate, it's actually going to overshoot in how much filament it's pushing in, and then it's going to slowly taper to your actual feed rate. So if you've got that perfectly tuned in to your extruder, theoretically, you wouldn't need that that sloping feature in, in Prusa Slicer. Yeah. Uh, theoretically. Yes, definitely. Theory so the, the sloping feature is especially usable either if you have a stock printer that can't do uh, pressure advance, or pressure advance is not a perfect solution for Bowden printers because... It is the system is so complex that you can't perfectly tune it in for all of the cases, and I think that helps just smoothening out some of some of the problems. Uh, these like fast transitions between between printing speeds. Um, I only tried it a little on on my machines. I think in the two point five release, it also just said, "Yeah, it's going to be preview." We didn't test it a ton, but I found it really interesting. Yeah, all in all just little little things just all the, all these little things coming together uh to make something that is just incrementally just getting better every time they release a new version yes talking about new version one last thing one such a good segue ah sorry um one last thing that you should keep in mind with um slicers backed by companies who also make printers is they're going to prioritize bugs and, and features based on what their machines need. Um, yeah. Just that's that's how business works, right? That's You're going to prioritize your own stuff before you care. Apply your, uh, your oxygen mask to yourself before you help others. Uh, you can't yeah. help others if you pass out before you get to them. Um, and that's something that's been pointed out too, is there are issues and bugs in push sizer with uh, multi-material or tool, multi-tool head changing uh, machines that are unfixed for like two years now and that people with an, an e3d tool changer have been running into and have been complaining about for a while and now that the prusa xl release is starting to creep closer um it's prusa the push size team is finally fixing those bugs it wasn't an issue for the mark three or the mini um, but now that they have the Excel, sometime soon, soon, elf time, um, it's an issue and they're fixing it. So 
just keep that in mind. Like this is not a, a, a product that is out there for the community. First and foremost, this is a product that is made to support the Prusa machines. And if there's a, a different use case that it's not optimal for, then they don't really have an incentive to make it optimal for that use case as well. Yes, I read that that Twitter rant, and I don't know. Um, I'm I'm behind you there. Of of course, they try to fix fix as much as they can, but they're just prioritizing their stuff. And I don't think that people should be in the position complaining about features that are way out of uh. what what the. <sighs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know that there is. I, I I see. I see both sides of the of the discussion. I see that there's that there's a problem and that it's not being fixed, and especially when it's a when it's a feature that's implemented and it doesn't work correctly, then it's like, hmm, you know, you're shipping you're shipping sort of a broken product, and either like not have that feature or fix it. In between is kind of meh, and especially. Especially with the background of Prusa's eyes, so basically having taken over the the slick theory development, um, taking that open source project and putting so much effort into it that the original development is gone. Like everything has transitioned over to Prusa's eyes from from the original slick theory. Um, especially a point where it used to be a community sort of open source project, and now it's a Prusa driven still open source project. I think that that that's a, a bit of a trickier situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. But on the other hand, they could just remove the feature at all. If people complain that it doesn't work, would that make it any better? But I, I don't know. There are always two sides to the metal. But I, I'm geschenkten Gaul schaut man nicht ins Maul. Yeah, the, yeah that's, you, that's the thing. <laughs> you don't the, the gifted horse kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when there's Here's the thing: when when there's when there's no real alternatives, when there's yeah, there's Cura, but that's also that's optimized for the Ultimakers. It's the same thing, kind of. When there's no alternative to that product for your use case, then yeah, I don't know. Though maybe Simplify 3D V5 is an alternative. <laughs> yes, talking about well, the meme is over. The meme is over. It's finally happened. I, so I think two or three weeks before they first released simplify v5 i received an email and they said yeah that v5 is gonna be a thing and i i barely believed it i seriously barely believed it there were so many rumors around and i don't know and now it's out and nobody cares (laughs) it's out (laughs) nobody cares and i'm honestly disappointed uh, and I also told them that. Um, why? They, they did what they promised. They released V5. They released V5 and they uh, they said, yeah, they're 170. Why is my... Sorry, my, uh, my camera's always focus hunting. Um, it's a podcast. Like people it's a, it's supposed a podcast. To look, look at this. Yeah. Camera's secondary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 160 new features and improvements and things like that. I opened it up. Yeah, it looked a tiny bit different, but there basically weren't any like major new features. It is, st- it is still a good slicer. It is 
probably the fastest of all slicers to what I have tested. Um, it's faster than slicing than Cura. It's faster than slicing than Prusa slicer. But the reason why people bought Simplify 3D five years ago that it had features that were outstanding and worth the price are not there anymore. Wait, you mean they, they, they remove them? Or no, it's just that um, it's, it's, it doesn't have unique selling points anymore? It doesn't really have unique sol- selling points anymore okay. or this unique selling points I purchased it for five, six years ago. I purchased it why it was the slicer that made the best support structure. Yeah, um, that's that's what it's known for, obviously. And then, that's of course, what, the, the processes, um, yes. the, the, the advanced controls you, you got with that. Yeah. But all of the more advanced features that we have seen being implemented in in other slicers in just the recent one or two years, talking about um, Arachne slicer, talking uh, or Arachne perimeter generation, talking about the organic supports that I think are a game changer. Um, yeah, none of that is in there, and so that would that would have only yeah. put them on basically the level as other free, free slicers but i think for spending 200 bucks on a software that there needs it's it's 200 bucks now it's 200 bucks now uh it used to be 150 139 i remember faintly. i think i bought yeah. it for 149 yeah. um you get a discount I think you can upgrade it for like 99 bucks if you purchase Simplify in the last, I don't know, year or something like that. Um, there's also a difference in the licensing sh- strategy. So before you had, you purchased one license and could use it on two machines in parallel. Mm-hmm. That's not possible anymore. So two, two computers. Ha- two computers. Um which, well, I have a laptop, I have the machine right here, so yeah, I, I had it installed on both machines. This is not possible anymore. You can only just activate it on one, one machine. There is somehow a um, a floating license thing, which is right. kind of common for, for other tools. So um, you, can in, you can install it on as many machines as you like, but can only use it on one machine at a time. Which they is aren't, fair enough, I'd, I'd which say. Which is fair enough. Yeah. Which is fair enough. But I don't know if that costs more. Um, there isn't any pricing listed on their website. I just know that from like regular software, um, a floating license usually costs like I don't know two to three times yeah. the amount of money money than a node locked license that's just activated on on one machine because typically floating licenses um you would use in a conversion in my environment where you'd have i don't know 50 engineers um who would all use the same tool but they wouldn't all use it at the same time so you'd get like five licenses for them and then each one could grab a license and use it for a while and then give it back and somebody else could use it um while while i'm talking a uh, quick correction about the upgrade abilities so licenses that were purchased in the last 12 months are upgraded for free and all other licenses there is a one-time discounted payment required to upgrade to v5 this is a direct quote from the website okay so last 12 months is free and then uh older than that you get a discount okay so 
they added a couple of new features. So they now have um, dynamic layer heights, but that's also something that we've seen on other machines. Uh, it They have seam hiding options. We, we have had that in Cura for 10 years now, for five years or yeah. e even longer. And it's, it's something very common. Um, they improved a bit the handling of or the generation of their custom support structures, which is still a nice thing and I, I think still working well. But um, comparing that to um, to what we have with, I don't know, just, just organic supports yeah. now, it's, it's, it's different. Um, one feature that I don't know if that's available in Prusa Slicer or in, in Cura, which I found really nice in the new um, a new Simplify3D version is the dynamic infill density. So what they're basically doing, uh, if you say you have, for example, 10% infill in, in your part, and then a dense layer starts. So we print something on top. They will, if you activate that feature, they will gradually, or I don't know, just in one step, add a couple of denser infill layers before like the, the fully filled right. layer starts. Right. That helps you with like, grouping of, of the material and things like that. Um, Cura definitely has that. Cura has had that for a long, long time. Um, I don't know if Prusa Slicer has it, um, but Prusa Slicer definitely has, doesn't have it, but maybe okay. Slicer. Yeah, Cura 100% Cura has it um, because I've used that exact feature five years ago or something um, for setting up like huge scale uh, 3D prints. Uh, but both of them have, well, I mean, Prusa has like support cubic and lightning infill and all those options where yep. it's like you have super sparse infill and then only where you need it, it actually generates denser infill. Yeah. So it kind of has something similar in, in feature. Um, but both Cura and Prusa Slicer have the adaptive, adaptive? adaptive cubic infill where towards oh, yes. the, the outside of the model your cubic infill gets denser mm. basically it, it subdivides those infill yeah. cells and adds more material in the center but typically yeah. that is something that only works on like really large models yeah um because it, it always tries to fit like a full cell of, of sparse material on the inside and typically your models don't have enough space to actually reduce the infill density there yeah i complain about those things and they basically uh told me that that they want to be just a no um let me put it this way uh they want to be just they want to be a well working reliable solution where you don't need to be afraid that things change too fast i don't know that's that, that's not what not but what they, they want said, to provide a stable platform they want to provide a stable platform and i think this is also one of the reasons why uh, simplify 3d is kind of popular by by commercial printers that yep. don't slap their interface on just cure house or or um Prusa Slicer. and to be fair it it still works good it, it slices really nicely it yeah sure it, Sure. It is a good slicer, but if you're looking for like the newest feature and especially outstanding feature, I th Simplify 3D is just not cutting it anymore. If you, well, it, yeah. it's it's probably just not worth the uh, the money anymore. It's, it's not worth the money anymore. It's, it's like I said, it's still okay. It's still a good slicer, but yeah. I, there's no reason to get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you have 
only been using Simplify 3D version 4.2.1 or whatever it was b before the release. Um, and you can upgrade at a discount and you want to have some quality of life improvements. I think it might be worth spending the money, but for anyone who's used to, to other slicers, just there's, yeah. there's almost no reason to, to use it anymore. Um, one thing I have to give them, and this is something that I kind of miss in Prusa Slice and in Cura, is uh, when I did um, parameter investigations in the past using processes in, in, in Simplify 3D was really nice. Um, so I could have had parts with 10 different parameters totally easy on, on one pl print platform. Um, this is, of course, now also possible with um, with Prusa Slicer with the part-specific settings, yeah, to but only extent. to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, to an extent. To an extent, you can't do all settings, and it's I I don't find it super usable, and or it's not not it, it, is, it is usable. It, it's just not user friendly. It's like very click heavy and convoluted to get all the settings set up um, for individual parts. If you're only worried about infra percentage and the typical infra percentage uh, parameters, top bottom layers, it's it works really well. But what I used to do in the past is, for example, different nozzle sizes or different print speeds and things like that. This is just yeah. not possible stock and process slice, and I always need to use G codes for that, which is not so nice. Yeah, that's it. <sighs> but perhaps with uh, Simplifier 3D not being worth it anymore, maybe Lychee Slicer is now the one to go for because they now support FDM. Lychee Slicer, yeah. of course... <laughs> sorry, sorry for the forced transitions here, but we, we, we need to keep moving on here. I'm, I'm kind of running out of energy. Um, so Lychee Slicer, I'm, I've not done a, a ton of digging into this, but Lychee Slicer has always been a, an alternative uh, resin slicer, so SLA resin printer for... Basically, I think for the, for the first Elegoo Mars machines, that's right, right about the time where it came out. And it's a, I think there's a free version, but there's it's also a, a paid software that you can, you know, spend money on. Um, and it's it's done some stuff better than uh, Shit the Box has done in the, in the past for the machines that use that. And it now supports FDM. And it's interesting to see a slicer coming from that angle. Because the tools you're using for um, for resin printing, like hollowing or I, I think splitting and stuff, is something that is like super integral to uh, integral to Litchi Slicer. Mm -hmm. Now is just there for FDM as well. Yeah, um, you can kind of see that in Prusa Slicer as well, where it really switches the interface between FDM and SLA mode. If you select the DSL1S or the Mark III, it it gives you a a really quite different interface to to use. Um, because it, it's just different tools that you need for the different processes. And yeah, it looks like Litchi Slicer now is carrying those features that they specifically used for, um, or specifically developed for resin slicing over to FDM. So some stuff they're pointing out is uh, split cut merge, measurement, support painting they've got. Um, mm. Support's, of course, huge thing with, with resin prints. Um, yeah. Banana for scale. 
Okay. <laughs> I, I, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I need to check if, if Prusa's lies on the... Um, in the model gallery, or how is it, how's it called? The also has a banana for scale. Anyways, I don't uh, so but the tools they're talking about are mainly for geometry manipulation. Since the slicing approaches, or better said, the path generation, or that path generation is something essential for FDM printing before they just, they also slice the part and had to extract the, the perimeter and fill that with, with color basically, or just fill that yep. layer with, with, they now had to develop a whole new set of algorithms to do of the path planning for FDM printing, which. Well, I mean, at its, at its core, it's the, at its core, as far as I'm aware, the the entire SlickTR toolpath really is just based on SVGs. Um, it's a it's a sequential process where it takes the STL, it slices it into layers, and it, it you can I think you can even export SVGs uh, on the command line um, from uh, yeah from from Prusa SlickTR. It then takes those SVGs and it infills it for each layer, um, but of course. It's not just per layer that you have to look at. You also have to look at like the previous layers. Like, mm. is this a bridge? Is this an overhang? Yeah. Is this something that needs support material? And all that happens after the fact, sort of. But up until that point where you where you've got your layers sliced into into SVGs into vectors, it's the same thing, really. So, kind of makes sense to just add that on top, just to say, hey, we're now gonna create motion in that and, and not just export it as a as a pixel image for the yeah. uh, for the recent masking screens definitely i don't think that it is a real competition for other fdm slices but if you are if you maybe started with resin printing and don't want to use two different tools um yeah this might be an option just to just stay in that one tool and and use it for your FDM printers and also for your resin printers. Um, I I wouldn't see me switching to Lichislas at the moment. Only if there are certain features that are interesting, or of course um, model menu money, blah, blah, model <laughs> manipulation. If if Lichislasers, I have I think I never used Lichislasers. If Lichislasers would be really good for model manipulation things we talked about before, cutting parts, adding packs and pins and things like that um not needing to switch back to another slice and just staying there is yeah. is definitely a feature to to look out for yeah anything that's that's competition anything that's more options is good um but of course i, I think we have to point out lichy slicer again it, it is a paid product um there is a free version that you can do uh that you can use but there are now different subscription options, whether you want resin or filament or both. Um, so I've just got the pricing page open here. The filament slicing, the pro filament slicing package is 40 bucks a year. The resin package is 60 bucks a year, um, euros that is. And if you get both, it's 80 bucks a year. Um, so that unlocks the pro and then there's also a premium option for 40 bucks a year. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it is paid, but like I said, more options, even if it is a paid software, that's good. I think that the fact that there was um, Simplify 3D and the fact that there was 
uh, that that people saw hey there's the, there's features that could be implemented that people are willing to pay for that are worth something to people that did kind of uh, incentivize i think at the start ultimaker to really invest into kira and then later on of course also uh prusa with the with prusa slicer just to say hey this is something that people want that that is valuable mm. to people and if it's included with our machines then that is extra value for our machines yeah so <sighs> you also didn't try it i no not the not the fdm version i think i've used i've i've had it open once or twice in the past um <laughs> but i don't think i've ever printed anything yet cool but it's there like it's yeah it's an option if you want to if you want to try it out there's a free tier um i don't know how the limitations are there but you know more options if you're not happy with uh, with what's included with your printer give it a try oh. quick one <laughs> upcoming festivals this year it's gonna be more oh uh, yeah there's there's now another one so how, the, how many are we up to five uh so, so there's murph the, murph. the og um midwest rep rep festival goshen indiana yes Earth. Earth. that was the one that came after that the East, East Coast, Coast Rep Rep Festival in near Washington DC. Yeah, Philadelphia. No, that's where between Philadelphia and Washington. In yeah, there. Then there's the uh, Smurf. The Smurf. Now, now is it called Smurf? The the Swedish 3D printer yes, meetup. Sweden 3D printing meetup. 3D PMS. So that. Um, then there's the. No, Smurf was the Sanjay Mortimer Rep Rep Festival. Oh, yes. Um, well, that's going to be in September. That E3D is putting on yeah. um, with the Sanjay Mortimer Foundation yeah. in the UK. And there's now, as well, the Rocky Mountain Rep Rep Festival. And you also put ne the Bay Area mm Maker Fair in there. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's another, that's another that's topic. Not a specifically... 3D printer festival. So I, I I count five, I think. Yeah. Look at, so Rocky Mountain Rep Rep Festival gonna be at the end of April in Colorado, Denver. Or is it Colorado? Colorado. <laughs> it's Colorado. Colorado. Um, uh, and you Denver, going? Colorado. I haven't booked my flights yet, but I will probably be there. Um, I was a bit hesitant because it's the first year and I don't want to be the only one there and spending a ton of money on, on traveling and expenses, but it looks really well organized so far. And I talked to a couple of other people and Man, if you compare it to, to Murph, like everything looks well. organized. Yeah. <laughs> and in the end, I, I, the thing, the thing that I enjoy on those events is just, seeing what what people are doing and and talking to the guys there um if there are enough exhibitors uh it's got to be a fun time if, even if there aren't even if it's just a, a little group of people who all can nerd out about the same thing i think yeah. it's it's going to be a fun time that's that's been sort of the experience with um the sweden 3d printer meetup that that i was at i think twice uh first i, I was there at the very first time they put it on it was just it was a really nice small festival, um, and if if the rock rap rock rap rock rap festival. <laughs> the, the Rocky Mountains rap rap festival is going to be 
in in any of the the spirit of of all the other festivals, I think it's going to work at any scale. Probably if it gets too big, it's it's, it's going to be less fun to attend. Um, so we'll if, see. I'm I'm probably not going to go. Um, I, I I feel like I just got to take it easy, and it's in two months already. Um, I, I I do want to go. I I do want to like traveling is always is always heaps of fun, but. I think I'm gonna have to skip this one. I'm gonna let you go, and you can you can report back maybe next year. Yeah. So, yeah, my plan is to go. I actually wanted to book flights this week, um, and I'm I'm really looking forward to because just the just the area where it is is I think way more impressive yeah. than. I don't want to rant about Goshen, but it's just everything is flat. And Denver is just, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful area. So just want to be, also want to be there for the looks. Yeah, I've never been to that that area of the US. Um, I've never been to Denver, but we did, we traveled the West Coast. I think that was already over 10 years ago. I think that was in 2011. Um, and we did all of like the national parks, um, around that area. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And that's the reason why, why I want to go back, even though it's going to be a kind of work trip, but yeah. Yeah. But you've learned from your, from your previous trips, you're going to tack on a couple of days before or after and just, uh, yeah, make it it an extended work trip. (laughs) The current plan is to, to after remurf remurf um these names man uh to to uh fly to to los angeles and uh visit matter hackers and maybe i even have the time to to go surfing with with dave there i don't know but i plan to fly to los angeles then on monday and probably on thursday back back home to germany let's see if that's gonna work out so Uh, it's gonna be quite the trip though it's gonna be yeah. be quite the trip, though. Um, I don't know, but the stressful it usually is, the much I usually enjoy it. So something new this year, and maybe just a last quick one. Ha- have you ever I've been to so, the so, so Bay Area else. Bay Area Maker Fair? I've been once. I think it was twenty. 20- couple years ago uh 16 17 18 yep. like one of the one of the last ones that, that was put on before make stopped existing and now now it's being put put back on by by, by whom by whom by by the <laughs> the uh by the science youtuber guys so um william osman i think he's he's kind of the guy that tries to organize that for this year so I've I've been to Banff and it's it's when I when I went it was a massive event. <laughs> so uh okay okay I'm I'm, I'm guessing it's not going to be the same scale then. Uh, you can well there is the William Osman two uh, channel where uh, just a couple of days ago they released a video where they were in in San Francisco checking out uh, a couple of locations. I th- I think that they want to make it happen. I don't know if 
they already realized what amount of organization organizational effort that's uh, yeah. that this is going to be but um it looks as if another bay area maker fair or i don't know if it's going to be like a real maker fair or at least a maker event might be happening this year it would be really cool to see what they come up with whether it's yeah. because the i mean the at a certain scale, you, you kind of have to go down that that route where it's like, hey, everyone gets a little booth and you, you get to present your stuff and yeah. like two thirds of the booth are, are selling you stuff. But it, I think when, when I was there, it was maybe a bit too big. I'm, I'm yeah. going to admit that it was a very commercial, very much into that, you know. That spirit and, and less of a of a maker fair. I've been to the, the smaller maker fairs in Munich. Um, which I don't know if, if they're even still happening. Um, but that's that's literally just a, a little concert hall that they've got a couple people in there. And that, mm -hmm. that feels much more like a like a maker fair and yeah. less of a maker sales pitch commercial bazaar. Um, so, yeah, in, interesting. So there, there's no concrete plans, dates or anything yet. I don't think so. I think they just mentioned that they gonna publish something soon. So um, I'm as as much as I heard, maybe summer this year. I, I was gonna say like if they're if they're in the planning stages right now, it, especially in San Francisco, I doubt it's gonna actually happen this year. That that would be plans for next year then. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I think I can't talk about too too much uh, because I don't know how concrete those plans are. Uh, I just wanted to talk about like the official stuff that has already been been communicated, and I'm I'm looking forward to that uh, because San Francisco is a really interesting or nice city, and um, so I, I think they want to set it up like as a mix of maker fair and vidcon so that you also have your science youtubers there and can on the one side make your meet and greets and on the other side show off your creations which might be an interesting concept uh, but of course that leads to overcrowding probably because you have many that are only yeah. want to attend this to meet guys like you and me um and not that many that are just interested in interested in, in in just amazing maker projects but we'll see but we'll see i'll keep a close eye on that um yeah. and see what what actually comes out of it um, maybe i can motivate you to 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 join me there <laughs> that would be pretty cool yeah when so when when i was there i think after the show i i took a quick drive out to uh to printerbot to oh, yes uh to brooke and he's he's up to to stuff as well um i think it was just a quick like two and a half hour drive to to his mm. place um yeah but lots of lots of stuff there obviously yep. it's every everything every, it's like silicon valley i mean <sighs> yeah. what, what do you want <laughs> All right. Um, I think we won't be answering any questions today. We had a lot of like just catching up to do. Um, if you guys have any questions, put them down in the comments. If you're listening, go to YouTube and put them there. I think that's the best way to uh, to get them to us. Um, and or I tweet at we us. or tweet at us. That that always works. 
at the melt zone uh, we get those notifications too and for the next one we're going to have a look through all the feedback channels <laughs> yes one one last thing no and uh no less thing uh <laughs> I, I was just wondering if didn't didn't you also use the multi twitter account management TweetDeck. tool tweet deck but that's now part of twitter is it it's been part of twitter for a while okay so it's been yeah I, I, w- I was wondering how easy checking different twitter accounts with like external software is is now since have the AP- APIs already been turned off? Or, I don't know. That was something, uh, something Twitter there's happening. No, something. There's no like a free tier that's, but I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, TweetDeck has been part of Twitter for a while. And I think I even gave you access to the, to the Melton account to that, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah. You did. Um, but you, you never check in, which I, <sighs> I, I don't blame you. There's enough stuff to, to keep track I, of. I do now have, I do now already have to manage my German YouTube gen- channel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, topic for the next video. Uh, topic, topic for the next Meltzone episode. Yeah. I've been, I've been dabbling in, in trying to translate some stuff as well, just to, to see how, how that all works out. But that's... we could, we could, we could hire an editor that does both of our stuff. <laughs> Well, because it, it's a uh, let's let's talk about that next time yeah, or after we the could, video. I mean, we could after, after recording. My, my my thought was like have a custom trained uh, Da Vinci O three model that can translate uh, the original scripts to to German. Yes. Yeah. Maybe. Big topic. Okay. Big topic. But that's it for today. Um, thank you all for sticking around through almost two hours of Meltzone. I hope that made up for the lack of episodes over the last couple of months. But you know how it is, life. And we'll try to, we, we always say this, we'll try to keep a more regular schedule, but we probably won't. <laughs> thank you, Stefan, for your time. If you want to support us, uh, that, that, that came off as like too quick. Thank you, Stefan, for your time. If you want to support thank us, um, you can do so on our patrons or through. Do we have YouTube memberships enabled on this channel? Yes, we do. we do. Yeah, uh, no, we don't. No, we, we don't? don't. We only have super chats activated. Yes. Okay, but we always we are, we we split the revenue evenly between uh, our, uh, our, our us two. So if you want to support <laughs> us, that that also helps. Of course, we will see you on the next one. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>